This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Bob Sebra. Bob Sebra, number 93. Bob Sebra, who is a pitcher for the Montreal Expos. And we will get to Bob in just a second, but we do have some follow-up from previous episodes that we need to clear out of the dugout before uh, we get to this next episode. Listener Rebecca asks, what was up with that briefcase with Juan Berenguer? So this is referring to episode 526 and the Berenguer boogie video. Juan Berenguer, also known as El Gasolino, In the video, Berenguer is wearing a trench coat, a fashionable hat, and carrying a mysterious briefcase. (laughs) Now, (laughs) when asked about the briefcase, he told a reporter from the Minneapolis Post that he always carried the briefcase because it contained things most important to him, such as family pictures, including several of his father who had died when Juan was a child in Panama. But David, it sounds like there's more to the story that you found. Yes, he carried the briefcase because he was nervous of flying. And it also had some tequila shots in the briefcase. Whoa. And <laughs> in another article, it says that there was a doll that he carried around with him, Matt. Uh, a doll named Little Smoke. So okay. Juan Berenguer, known as El Gasolino, a.k.a. Senior Smoke, carried a doll named Little Smoke. <laughs> that had traveled with him throughout the minor leagues. And this doll had been presented to him by a fellow Panamanian when he signed his first professional contract. So he had been carrying this doll around with him throughout his entire professional career. And before each game, he said that he would have a conversation with Little Smoke and he would say, (laughs) be ready, Little Smoke. I may need you tonight. (laughs) So Little Smoke was some kind of uh, good luck charm for him. I don't know if the tequila shots were also a good luck charm, but they helped him get through some flights. They're always good luck to me. That is great. So, Rebecca, there you go. Also in the queue, I see two updates on last week's episode, Andy Van Slyke, which is episode 142. First one I'll take care of really quickly. There's a great interview that we'll put in the show notes. Andy Van Slyke was asked by this interviewer from Yahoo in 1995... The reporter says, you took over for Lenny Dykstra in center field for the Phillies in 1995. I just imagine him leaving it filthy, which, as we've already stipulated, Lenny Dykstra was a very filthy, dirty kind of player, chewing tobacco. Van Slyke replies, it was probably worse when I was playing against him. When he was out there, there was all sorts of debris that he left behind, stains, Easily, the EPA could have come in and quarantined a large circle in center field. If you stood long enough in the area, it would be like secondhand smoke. Like secondhand tobacco certainly was present. And David, I know that since since you are a person uh, working in the environmental field, are you aware of any brownfield programs f- related to Lenny Dykstra? Yeah, Lenny Dykstra redevelopment plans. I think <laughs> I think that, yes, this this is a... Probably an area ready for some engineer to come in and and clean up. 
the the mess left behind after Lenny. I feel like you having to read his Twitter feed as much as you did to prep for that episode, you definitely deserve some remediation. <laughs> yes, his Twitter feed needs to be condemned. <laughs> Excellent. So there's our Andy Vance-like dad joke. Uh, David, how about the other Andy Vance-like follow-up? You actually read his book. Matt, you started to read one of his books and gave up. I read his fiction book. Wow. This is the first entry in the 1988 Tops Book Club. Andy Van Slyke and Rob Raines wrote a book called The Curse, colon, Cubs win, Cubs win, or do they? Do I love the use of ellipses after an exclamation <laughs> point? No. <It's> confusing. <laughs> uh Whatever. The title is ridiculous because I don't know if I want to spoil the ending. I'm not going to spoil the ending for the book here. No, don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. 1988 Tops podcast listeners are going to be a key Andy Vance-like book reading audience, and I really don't want to spoil this for our listeners. Andy wrote this with Rob Raines, who is a St. Louis reporter who's written a bunch of books, did a lot of profiles of St. Louis athletes. There's some praise in the book from Cubs legends like Billy Williams and Fergie Jenkins, Tom Arnold. Ozzie Smith said that this, quote, will keep you entertained through every page, which is what I look for in a book. <laughs> how does it how does that stand up? It wasn't terrible. I was the first person to review this book on Goodreads. I gave it three out of five stars. It opens with a plane crash that kills basically the entire 2010 Cubs team. Oh. Fictionalized Cubs mm. team. And the owner. But was it an accident? Oh, dun, It turns dun, out dun. there's intrigue. Uh, a couple of the characters here. We have TJ. TJ was is the child of the owner who was killed in the, in the plane crash. He really loves the game of baseball. He had gone into scouting. He's going to be forced into ownership of this Cubs team. He hires Mike Callen, former big league center fielder. He had been nice to TJ when he was a kid. Mike was now coaching a youth team in Kansas. But when he was a player, he was a center fielder. He had all the tools, power, speed, defense, great arm. I would call him an Andy Vance-like type. Yeah, he sounds a lot like a center <laughs> fielder I've heard of and just did a podcast about last week. Even to the... To the point of being described as 6'2", 195, I went to the back of Andy's card and he was 6'1", 190. The original Mike Callen was Andy Van Slyke's high school coach, so that was the namesake. There's a reporter character, a, a power hitter who had suspicions of steroid use with the last name McGare, sort of like McGuire. Hmm? Ah. They had to fill this team with castoffs from other teams. Billy Slagle's a minor league guy, but he really loves the game and has all these history facts about the Cubs. So in brief, they have to replace this whole team that was in first place and try to bring a, a World Series victory to the city of Chicago. It was surprisingly interesting, the parts that we're talking about, the process of rebuilding the team, using the process that would be used in an expansion draft. I wouldn't have expected that to be interesting. Callen gives a lot of speeches that are kind of cheesy, and the players don't like him at first, but they learn to respect him. <laughs> I imagine that Andy Vance like was sitting there like, yeah, when I'm coach, 
this is the way this is the way that I manage the team. I'll be I'll be a little rough around the edges. They may not like me at first, but they'll grow to respect but me. But god damn it, they'll respect <laughs> me. Uh, they, <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, while this is happening, the uh, okay, we should let's let's wrap this up. I, I will, I will. So, meanwhile, there's an investigation into the crash. Whether there was some foul play afoot, TJ learns that his dad was maybe trying to sell the team and had money problems. Will the reporter figure it out? Will he find love with the beautiful receptionist? <laughs> Will the Cubs win the pennant? You know, in the last few months, I've read Infinite Jest. <laughs> and I've read this book written by Andy Van Slyke. <laughs> Do I have a comparison? Yes. Did I give both of them three-star review on Goodreads? Yes. Do both of them have stunted male characters with father issues? Yes. Definitely yes. <laughs> Non-existent female characters or people of color? Definitely yes. <laughs> but this book was surprisingly not that bad. It was like, it moved very quickly. There's a lot of history notes in there. I just kind of wanted to get through it, see where it was going. As far as fiction books written by players in the 1988 top set, this is the gold standard. We have just uncovered a new subplot to the 1988 Tops podcast. Who wrote the best book in the set? Thank you for your service <laughs> in finishing that. You went above and beyond the call of duty, David. Let's go to Bob Sebra. I recall us mentioning Bob Sebra in a trade earlier in the series. Is that why we picked Bob Sebra this week? Matt, during the Pete Incavilia episode, we thought about doing a two-card episode. Maybe we wouldn't have enough to talk about, so let's add an extra card in to talk about somebody who was traded for Pete. It ended up that we had enough to talk about with Pete, and so we decided to hold off on doing, doing a two-card episode. So when we were looking for cards for this week, I was reminded, who were the folks that were traded for Inky? We recorded the Pete Incavilia episode on July 18th, and... When I Googled Bob this past week to look into a, a new card to do for this week, I learned that he passed away on July 22nd. Oh. So I thought it would maybe be fitting to do a little bit of a tribute to Bob Sebra in light of the fact that he recently passed on and in memory of Bob Sebra. David, that sounds like a great idea. Let's pull up Bob's card here. Again, this is card 93. So looking at the front of the card, Bob is a right-handed pitcher. They've captured him in mid-throw. And I would say this is unusual kind of look, David, because it looks like this picture is being taken from home plate. You can see Bob throwing uh, the pitch uh, toward home. You can also see a second baseman, it appears, standing on second base, not paying attention. He might be smoking a cigarette back there. <laughs> it's Montreal, so it's very likely. And then even further back, you can see the center fielder who maybe is dancing. I don't know. It doesn't <laughs> look like he's playing baseball. But it's a really weird. It's very artistic. Yes. And I sure I really hope that Bob is throwing some warm up pitches here because that second baseman is not ready for the play. He's <laughs> not ready. He is not in ready position. <laughs> Nor is that center fielder there dancing or running no. wind sprints. I don't know what's I happening. I also back have there. to say this is the most attractive, artistic looking uniform 
that we've seen in the set so far. This, I know it's just a white shirt and white pants, but the blue and red stripes on the side with the black belt and the number 48 on the front. I don't know what it is about this whole look, David, but I love it. It's it's unfortunate that this is the white jersey because the the light blue Montreal Expos jersey is part of the reason why this podcast exists, I think. That is <laughs> a beautiful baseball jersey. And the Expos logo, I, I'm wearing my Expos hat right now that is nearly worn out. One, Montreal is one of my favorite places in the world. It's a, a beautiful place. I hope that someday they get baseball back there. The logo itself is great. It's an M. And until recently, I wasn't quite sure what the logo is of the Montreal Expos. It mm. kind of looks like an E and an L. Maybe there's the E and the L kind of go together, and then there's a B. As I currently understand it, it's the letter M in red, white, and blue with an, a red E and the blue B, mm-hmm. which stands for Montreal Expos Baseball. Yes. And it's a pinwheel cap, so it has panels that are white, red, and blue, and then a blue brim, my favorite baseball cap. It's very, very sharp. A lot of times people will stop me on the street and say, hey, cool hat. Those are our people. Those are our 1988 <laughs> Tops podcast listeners. Uh, I need 1988 Tops podcast business cards to hand out to random strangers on the street <laughs> who will stop a man to talk to him about his Montreal Expos hat. You uh, do. You do. So flipping to the back of the card, Bob is a right-handed thrower and batter, drafted by the Rangers in June of 1983. Bob was traded by the Rangers to the Expos with infielder Jim Anderson for outfielder Pete Cavilia in November of 1985. As listeners will recall, that was a trade that Pete Cavilia refused to play for Montreal, said that he wanted to go straight to the pros, demanded a trade, in return, the Expos received Bob Sebra and Jim Anderson, who I think after that trade never played in the pros again. So <laughs> didn't, they got the short end of the stick on that deal. So Bob, born in Ridgewood, New Jersey. We've got a link here, David, to Bob's high school career. Bob was an outstanding prep pitcher for this 24-0 team in 1980. One story that was told about the team as this is now the 40th anniversary of that team is that he over their prom weekend his senior year had been running around they had like gone to the shore so they're you know swimming and you know high school kids doing high school kid things he was running around he twisted his ankle and he said it swelled up like a bowling ball bob went out in the next game with a a twisted ankle that was swelled up like a bowling ball and threw a no hitter in the first game <laughs> So in that postseason, he pitched 17 innings, gave up two hits, and struck out 38 batters. So they won, <laughs> they won the state championship, first undefeated team in the state since 1958. Bob is basically a legend in South New Jersey. The team was the high school team of the century. Fantastic. Of course, traded for Pete Cavilia, who was the college player of the century. So this is an incredibly high-powered trade. <laughs> yes. But looks like the bad part of his high school uh, career, though, was that he had a sore arm as he finished up his senior year. So the scouts withdrew their offers. So he didn't end up going straight to the minor leagues. He went to 
University of Nebraska at Lincoln and played three seasons uh, of college baseball. Gets drafted the following year in the fifth round by the Rangers. Then gets called up in 85. Yeah, that first call up to the Rangers, he pitched in seven games, went 0-2, and had a 7.52 ERA. So had a pretty rough go of his first call up into the majors. Coming out of 85, so he has a trade to the Expos. Now 1986 with the Expos. And it looks like decent season, pretty good for half of a season. He's in the minors and then pitches 17 games for the Expos. But what's most interesting is this incident with the Reds. Yes, he kind of holds a point of distinction. This is a little bit of an esoteric one, I guess. Well, welcome welcome to the 1988 Tops podcast. <laughs> Bob was on the mound in the ninth inning versus the Reds. He gets two outs. Then he hits Pete Rose. Pete Rose was the <laughs> player manager for the Cincinnati Reds in 1986. He then gives up a double, intentionally walks Eric Davis to load the bases to get a play at any base with two outs. So the bases are loaded, two outs, and he walks Bo Diaz to walk in Pete Rose. It was a tie game, so Rose scored the winning run in the game. This is the last time that a walk-off run was scored by an opposing manager. <laughs> so that, Pete Rose oh is the last, the last player manager in Major League Baseball. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. That was actually surprisingly succinct for that story. Yeah, I think very well told, and that is blown my mind. <laughs> So a, a decent season for Bob in 1986 as a rookie. Going into 1987 with the Expos, this 1987 Expos team was very good. In the running for much of the season for the National League East title. With 15 games left to play, they were two games behind the Cardinals. Unfortunately, they went 7-8 and eight to close out the season and ended up finishing in third place four games behind the Cardinals. They ended up 91 and 71. So a really, a very good record for a Montreal Expos team. And unfortunately for Bob, it seems like on every good team, there's a guy that kind of can't catch a break. He finished six and 15 on a team that went 91 and 71. Mm. So a pretty poor record, but that doesn't really tell the whole story. He led the Expos with strikeouts and was eighth overall in the National League with 156 strikeouts. He had four complete games and finished second on the, on the team in innings pitched. There was a good stretch of games in late June, early July, where he was pretty close to perfect. He pitched three complete games in a row. And, of course, with Bob's luck, there was a game where he struck out 14 guys and lost one to nothing. And in this five-game stretch... He went three and one with a 1.13 ERA over 40 innings. So he's, you know, pitching almost complete games for a five-game stretch and still not getting wins in all five of those games. The second half of the season, he fell off a little bit. Opponents hit 3.02 against him, and his ERA was 5.53 in the second half of the season compared to 3.66 in the first half. In the last month, when the the Expos were really down to the wire. He pitched in eight games and had an 8.20 ERA. So he had a, a really rough end of the season, and it may have just been that his arm was tired at the end of his first full major league season. 
So the Expos fade. They don't make the playoffs that year. Where did Bob go after that? In 1988, he had a pretty good season in AAA. He went 12-6 and with a 2.94 ERA and was traded to the Phillies. He played sparingly in the majors for the Phillies in Cincinnati in 88 and 89, and then went to the Brewers in 1990, which I think brings us to our next notable Bob Sebra highlight. Yes. We have a, another running subplot in the 1988 Tops podcast, our excellent bench-clearing brawls. And this, this is definitely a good one here. I'm going to pull up this YouTube of this, this fight up on the Jumbotron. Bob was a relief pitcher for the Brewers at this point in 1990. He comes in in the eighth inning against the Mariners at the Kingdom. The Mariners are up 5-2. to two. Bob gives up a home run to the first batter that he faces, and it's Hackman. It's our, our good friend yes. Jeffrey Leonard. Yes, Jeffrey Leonard from episode 570, with the, he with the famous Hackman jacket. Hackman hits a home run in the first at bat versus Bob. And then the next batter is Edgar Martinez, who hits a double. At that point, Bob just threw the ball directly at Tracy Jones. And you see (laughs) Tracy Jones kind of start walking to first base, start jawing with Zebra. And then a 10-plus minute brawl breaks out, including fights all over the field. Yeah, I'm looking right here at like at Randy Johnson, the big unit, being being held back by about eight guys. There's a lot of Hall of Famers involved in this game too. You have Randy yeah. Johnson, you have Robin Yount was on that Brewers team, Edgar Martinez, Ken Griffey Jr. was twenty at the time, and you can see him later in this video kind of pulling guys away, but kind of laughing about it. There's again some managers getting involved, Tom Treblehorn who is the Brewers manager, was wearing a warm-up jacket underneath his jersey, which is a weird look. Yeah. Randy Johnson's shirt has been is basically ripped off of him. This is he, un, he's this just is, lurking around back there. Uh, a few minutes in, <laughs> Jeffrey Leonard just comes sprinting out of the dugout. I don't know if he had gone back to the, the clubhouse. I don't know what he was doing, but he comes sprinting into the fray. Coaches getting body slammed is also a running theme of the 1988 <laughs> Tops podcast. Yes. Tom Treblehorn just gets slammed to the ground in his yeah. warm-up jacket. Why does he have his jacket underneath his jersey? I'm finally seeing this on this video. It looks so stupid. I don't know. I don't know. It's tucked into his and it's tucked <laughs> yes. into his pants. <laughs> Later in the video, he goes, he's buttoning both his jacket and his shirt over it it's a it's a weird look it's like a steve bannon look (laughs) just too many shirts so many he's he was layering it's a good it's a good idea bob's reaction to this after the game somebody asked him about it and he rather than say that a pitch got away from him he just said you know things haven't been going right for me or the team it was just time for somebody to take a lump. I wasn't trying to hit him in the head, but I was trying to drill him. <laughs> Bob had a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. He also had a great curveball. This was definitely the fastball, just yeah. drilling Tracy Jones and leading to a 10-minute you know, fight. 
It's a very good one. A lot of guys got ejected from this game. A lot of good names in here. BJ Serhoff, Gary Sheffield, Randy Johnson. Is that Dave Parker? It can't be Dave Parker. Yes, it was Dave Parker. Anyway, all right, I'm done with it. I think what's the most interesting part of this is that Bob Sever was suspended for five games. After the game, he was demoted to AAA. And he was supposed to serve his suspension whenever he returned to the majors. It turns out that he never got back to the majors. He continued in the minors for a few seasons, but never got another call up to the majors. He had a 15 and 29 record with a 4.71 ERA for his career. Bob's minor league career ended in 1993 at the age of 31. Over the intervening years, Bob's health deteriorated. He had been a 6'2", 185 in this 1988 tops. In one article I read, he had dropped down to 120 pounds. He had liver problems and required a transplant in 2012. That transplant kept him going for a few years. At some point in those intervening years after, after that transplant, he was in a coma. And interestingly, his son is, is on Twitter. And his son was also a, a baseball player, played in the minor leagues, and is currently a minor league hitting coach in the Angels system. And he tweeted that while his dad was in a coma, he had signed fan mail for his dad. And he saw some of them for sale. And he compared mm. the two and said that his signature was going for more than his dad's actual signature, <laughs> which was pretty funny. But he also said that he didn't know his dad as a healthy person, that his dad had been sick for so long that, that he kind of forgot what his dad was like or never knew his dad as a, as a healthy person. In 2019, Bob had a multi-organ transplant, uh, a multi-visceral transplant, which lasted 16 hours and involved his liver, pancreas, spleen, stomach, small and large intestines. After that, his pancreas failed and he had to have that transplant done again. That led to multiple infections and other setbacks, and he spent the last year in the ICU. Add to that the complications from COVID and the fact that he couldn't have visitors in the hospital, and it led to his quality of life being severely diminished. He went down fighting, though, and there's a, a quote from Bob that, he said, it's going to be a tough year, but anybody that knows me knows I'm going to go down fighting. I will fight my ass off. Uh, and as we just watched in that video, Bob, not afraid of a fight. Yeah, and not afraid of a fight. He fought this for a year and was in the ICU for a year, and he passed away on July 22nd. I do want to make sure to credit a couple of really good sources here. RIPbaseball.com, which is at RIP underscore MLB on Twitter, and Sam Gazjik wrote a really great obituary on there for Bob. Also, Kevin Glue and the Canadian Baseball History Blog, which is at Coop in Canada on Twitter, which is a great follow for all things related to Canadian baseball teams and Canadian players and anybody who played for the Blue Jays or for the Expos. All had very good obituaries and uh, write-ups on Bob after he passed away. Bob consider considered himself a fighter. We saw that in that video. And he he finished off his life still under suspension from Major League Baseball for fighting. So there you go. 
Ken Willis in the Daytona Beach News Journal, who's at Willie NJ on Twitter, said, Bob Sebra's life, like his career, was too short. And that was mm-hmm. the, the title of his, of his piece. Also a great testament to Bob's life. And yeah, rest in peace, Bob Sebra. Thanks, David. Thank you at home for listening. If you have a request on a card that you would like us to cover on the show, please reach out to us on Twitter at Tops1988, or you can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. We will see you next week.